Hello and welcome to Skepticast, the show that makes you cocktail party smart in 15 minutes or less. If you've been enjoying our podcast so far, subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Instagram at The Skepticast. Today, we're talking about universal basic income. As you may know, universal basic income was invented by Democratic presidential candidate and human Reddit thread Andrew Yang sometime in 2018. Since then, it's become a hot topic of discussion amongst authors, thinkers, and Silicon Valley, which feels a little guilty for innovating the working class out of their jobs. But first, wait, what? A segment in which my producer Mimi reads me the best and worst headlines of the week. U.S. retail rose 7.5% in June as stores reopened. I'm going to die of coronavirus, but I'm going to do it in some new shorts from Macy's. Airbnb says its IPO plans are back on track. After a financial hit from the pandemic, the San Francisco company said business was starting to return from its nosedive. Oh, yeah, that's great. That's what we need right now. San Francisco housing was almost going to be affordable, and then another big tech company had to go on IPO. Boom time for death planning. The coronavirus pandemic has drawn new business to startups that provide end-of-life services, from estate planning to a final tweet. (laughs) a final tweet actually that makes sense though because when i think about what i'm afraid of when i die in addition to like if there is an afterlife and whether or not i'm going to heaven or hell and all of that is also my digital presence could you imagine if your last tweet on earth was like it had a typo or it was just something dumb and that is the last thing you put out into the world yeah i would pay for that service i'd pay for that Okay, so universal basic income. It's also known as UBI. Universal basic income has been described as a panacea, a bad idea, and a socialist takeover nightmare. My producer Mimi is definitely in the pro-UBI camp. I mean, it's only the best idea of all time. Uh Uh-huh. Now, to give a quick and dirty idea of how this idea has become more popular, universal basic income never appeared in the New York Times before 2014. And if you just search basic income, there's maybe two a year since World War II. But in the past year alone, it appeared 177 times. So what is UBI and why is it suddenly so popular? Today, we're going to look at three components of it. First, we will define it and look at who its biggest supporters are, aside from Mimi. It's a pretty wild grab bag of people who otherwise wouldn't want to be in the same room together. Then we'll look at a few different versions of UBI proposals. And finally, we will talk about the evidence for and against it. And we'll talk about how UBI could solve everything and also might be the worst idea ever. First, let's define UBI. UBI is a very simple proposal. It's a recurring cash grant given to all members of a community without men's test and no strings attached. That was Juliana Bidetanure, a political scientist and head of the Stanford Basic Income Lab. She is also like the coolest person at any academic conference she's ever been to. She's this badass French chick. She has dreadlocks. I want to be her friend so bad. But she's already in the coolest camp at Burning Man somewhere and she has no idea who I am. Anyway, back to the definition. A true UBI must be universal. So that sounds obvious, but most proposals actually aren't UBI, they're just BI. True UBI gives money to literally every single person, no matter how much they already have. It also must be unconditional and paid directly to individuals, not households. 
That means it goes to everyone from Jeff Bezos to your unemployed high school friend who's been like sort of on a personal journey. Like I'm not really doing the working thing for like five years. UBI is also recurring, not a one-off lump sum payment. And it has to be paid in cash. It's not a tax credit. It's not a food stamp or any other type of welfare. It's cold, hard Benjamins. Speaking of Benjamins, remember that this was the year we were supposed to get Harriet Tubman on the 20. Anyway, while UBI has a specific definition, most proposals we refer to as UBI don't actually meet the full criteria. For today's episode, we'll be talking about UBI broadly to refer to policies and proposals, even if they don't strictly qualify by like the academic definition. The first documented proposal of something like universal basic income appeared in Agrarian Justice, written, as obviously we all know, by Thomas Paine in 1797. He thought it was common sense. (laughs) Common sense. Do you get it? Because Thomas Paine wrote Common Sense, a pamphlet which in many ways formed the philosophical underpinnings of the American Revolution. (laughs) I'm so good. My eyes are rolling so hard right now. In Agrarian Justice, which my boyfriend reads aloud to me when he wants to get me in the mood, Paine proposed a lump sum payment to every individual on their 21st birthday of 15 pounds sterling. Instead of a letter from Hogwarts, you get cash. Then you get 10 pounds sterling to everyone aged 50 and above. He would fund all of this through an inheritance tax. Back then, the average salary was like 21 pounds a year for a farmer, so old Tommy Boy was actually being pretty generous with his proposal. His ideas were heavily influenced by John Locke, the political scientist, and the original J-Lo. His arguments for UBI were grounded in economic liberty and human rights. Payne said that technology and farming consolidation led to huge leaps in productivity, but those profits were not distributed equally and instead created, quote, a species of poverty and wretchedness that did not exist before. I love all the drama of old-timey thinkers, right? You know, today these think pieces are like, we're not doing good. Back then it was just all so dramatic. Philosophically, his argument was actually pretty similar to arguments given today about automation. T-Pain was like the original tech bro. I remember in college econ, you learn all about efficient markets and your wage is a function of your productive output. And they teach you fancy equations that some white guy won a prize to prove all of this. And in a perfect market with perfect information and perfectly rational actors, yeah, I'm sure that's the case. But that's kind of like saying everyone can fly if we assume the perfect existence of zero gravity. Starting in the 70s, worker productivity and wages began to diverge. Productivity increased significantly, but wages either stagnated or increased only a little, depending on how you're measuring it. Yeah, no shit. That's why ours is the first generation that has less wealth than our parents do. Some people now argue that UBI is a means of compensating for that wage productivity gap, just as Thomas Paine argued back in 1797, although T. Paine was talking about cornfields. It's actually fascinating how many different people from completely different sides of the political spectrum support something like UBI. Martin Luther King and the Black Panthers supported UBI on the grounds of racial justice and compensating African Americans, sort of like a version of reparations. Many feminists support UBI because it can empower women who are financially dependent on a man. Especially for women in abusive relationships, financial independence could be an issue of survival. Yeah, thanks for mansplaining that to me. It even got support from the conservative think tank American Enterprise Institute, which could accurately be renamed Boners for Freedom if anybody that worked there could actually still get one. The conservative argument for UBI is that it simplifies the welfare system by eliminating means testing. 
means testing means you have to be below a certain level of means or like an income level. So basically the government follows you to Chipotle and if you add guac, you're not getting these welfare benefits. Conservatives' criticism of means testing is that it costs a lot of taxpayer money and time to determine who qualifies for things. Conservatives also say that UBI eliminates the quote, welfare trap, which we'll get into later. And they also say that giving people cash enhances individual choice and their freedom. So the takeaway here is that people from Silicon Valley tech bros to the Black Panthers to libertarian scholars to Bernie Sanders have taken vastly different roads to the same conclusion. They support some form of universal basic income. Godspeed to whatever poor event planner has to put together that seating chart. Next, we'll look at some past and present proposals for UBI. Let's start with the negative income tax. It's not exactly UBI, but it's close. It was proposed by none other than the ultimate capitalist fuckboy, Milton Friedman. The negative income tax is like UBI's cousin who just finished Econ 1A and now won't shut up about marginal cost benefit analysis. Here's old Milt explaining it. The proposal for a negative income tax is a proposal to help poor people by giving them money, which is what they need, rather than as now, by requiring them to come before a governmental official, detail all their assets and their liabilities, and be told that you may spend X dollars on rent, Y dollars on food, et cetera, and then be given a handout. The idea of the negative income tax is to treat people who are poor in the same way as we treat people who are rich. Both groups would have to file income tax returns, and both groups would be treated in parallel way. A negative income tax guarantees a base level of income. If you make less than that income, the government gives you cash to make up that gap. Under a common proposal, let's say the minimum income is $40,000, and you get 50% of the difference between what you make and that $40,000. So if you make $20,000, the difference is $20,000, and then the government would give you an additional $10,000. The negative income tax claims to solve a few issues with our current welfare system. MIT economist Joshua Angrist points out, quote, the irony of our welfare system is that poor people actually pay very high taxes. For each dollar of earnings, they lose benefits. So once you start making money, you no longer qualify for a lot of welfare programs. But depending on what kind of welfare you were getting, your new income might not be enough to afford the benefits that you just lost. So it actually doesn't make sense for you to try to make more money, which doesn't make sense. Economists refer to this as a welfare trap. Our boy Milt said that just giving people straight cash money would solve the welfare trap because then you'll never lose more in welfare benefits than you would gain in new income. I suppose if you do the math right, then the minimum income you could receive would be enough for you to afford basic necessities. Okay, you guys, I just extensively quoted Milton Friedman. My woke liberal friends are no longer speaking to me, and my two remaining conservative friends just asked me to co-host their podcast? Okay, anyway, moving on to another UBI proposal, Andrew Yang's. Today, the public face of UBI is former Democratic presidential candidate Andrew Yang. We'll overlook the fact that his most meaningful accomplishment to date is being CEO of a test prep service because he seems like a pretty cool guy. Uh, It's blasphemous to talk about Andrew Yang like that. He brought UBI to mainstream America and he was almost our president. He got 1% in the primary, Mimi. Anyway, Yang's proposal is an actual universal basic income. It would provide $1,000 to every single American over the age of 18, no questions asked. His proposal meets all the criteria. It's universal, it's in cash, and it's recurring, at least for adults over the age of 18. 
for that reason, it's a pretty good stand-in for most UBI proposals. The universality element is actually important because it reduces the stigma associated with being a welfare recipient. A lot of academics think that the strong negative stigma, especially in America, where we believe in freedom, accounts for lower take-up rates of certain welfare programs. But hey, if everyone is receiving the benefit, then no one's going to judge anybody else for it, right? Opponents argue that these programs are just communism or socialism, but like 99% of the people throwing those words around on Twitter, all they're really doing is showing they have no idea what those words actually mean. Google is free, people. Yang's website is pretty detailed. His arguments for it, in order of how convincing they are, are that it won't increase inflation, it won't reduce salaries, and that America can pay for it. Giving everybody money won't increase inflation because the government won't be printing money to fund it. It would be funded through new tax revenue and then cutting existing programs. As for salaries, he says automation has been lowering wages for years. UBI would give workers more leverage because they would have more cushion to find a better job rather than have to take whatever job they can get the fastest. I'm a little bit skeptical of that one. And to pay for it all, Yang proposes a value-added tax or a VAT. He says that would cover a lot of the expense. And then he says, quote, streamlining existing welfare programs would make up for the rest. I mean, when in doubt, just say cost savings will pay for it and then rapidly change the subject. Um, For your information, many economists actually support the funding of UBI through a value added tax, much more than they support a wealth tax like the one that Elizabeth Warren proposed. That's because VAT taxes are more efficient to actually collect. They're like sales tax. And all of Europe has had them for a while. And because they have some other side benefits as well, like encouraging rich people to save and donate their money rather than making huge luxury purchases. God, you're like an angry Siri. Negative income tax and Andrew Yang's plan are pretty representative of the kinds of proposals that get classified under UBI. Other proposals might have more or less income, they might have more or less conditions, but these are some pretty solid baseline proposals to start understanding UBI. Juliana Bidetanyuré, the political scientist I desperately want to tell me that I'm cool, said that when you ask people what they would do if you give them $1,000 a month, they respond with responsible things. They would save it, they'd spend it on education, they'd do other cool things. But when you ask them what other people would do with it, they say, well, other people would totally blow it on like hookers and booze. I mean, it's like my boyfriend. He's wonderful, but honestly, if you ask me if we should give him $1,000 a month, All I'm picturing is an apartment overflowing with matcha whisks, niche vacuum accessories, and Korean sunscreen brands. But I asked him, and he said he'd pay down student loans. I'm skeptical. Wearing sunscreen early is an investment in your face. You actually save money in the long run because you don't need Botox. Okay. Researchers looked at UBI and similar programs that were implemented in low-income countries and found pretty good results. The World Bank reviewed the impact of cash programs on spending for, quote, temptation goods, basically like cigarettes and alcohol. To quote the World Bank study, quote, almost without exception, studies find either no significant impact or a significant negative impact of transfers on temptation goods. So the idea of straight up giving poor people cash might send Mitch McConnell into cardiac arrest, and that actually might be the best argument I've heard for it. But aside from that, the World Bank study found poor people actually spent the money pretty wisely, and these people got out of poverty. So these programs were pretty effective. Another big critique is that UBI would make people stop working. If the government gives me money, why don't I just get high and watch Netflix all day? I mean, that's what most of us are doing in quarantine anyway, right? No, no, I know, I know. You Instagrammed the one bike ride you took this week, and then you had a great socially distanced picnic. Yeah, uh it's okay. Just be honest, people. 
So the question of what it does to work is actually a lot harder to answer. Alaska actually does give its citizens money because it has a lot of oil and like five residents, including my friend John. Hi, John. He doesn't live there anymore, but he's my Alaskan friend. Every Alaskan does get one to $2,000 per year just for being Alaskan. Even Sarah Palin? Unfortunately, yes. It's universal. That's the whole point. Economists looked at this program's impact on work. They found it didn't really impact how much Alaskans worked, and it actually may have had a small positive contribution to employment because it made people spend more money. That still doesn't totally answer the question of UBI's impact on work, though, because it's only one to $2,000 a year, and that barely covers my boyfriend's matcha whisk budget. Okay, I'm sorry for letting my personal life spill into my professional life like this. He got really into matcha over quarantine, and it's just been... Oh, it's been a lot, you guys. Okay. Anyway, some UBI supporters, they say that people working less is actually the point. The cash means people are freer to choose a job that might pay less, but it's actually better for society, like working in a nonprofit or going into the arts, because what LA really needs is more unemployed screenwriters. Or how about compensating moms for all their unpaid labor? Yeah, that sounds, that sounds great. Uh, those are all really interesting points. But to me, the biggest argument for hitting the brakes on UBI comes down to how we pay for it. And what do we cut to pay for it? On costs, Andrew Yang's proposal of $12,000 a year to every American over the age of 18 would cost roughly $3 trillion per year. That is according to UC Berkeley economists Hillary Hoynes and Jesse Rothstein. That's a shit ton of money. That's 88% of all the tax revenue the government took in in 2018. That's more than Trump's golfing budget and more than what Netflix spends on mediocre content combined. I'm kidding, Netflix. I love your content. Please buy our show. Also, to put that in perspective, Elizabeth Warren proposed her crazy wealth tax, but that would only raise $2.75 trillion over 10 years. UBI would need roughly that every year. A lot of UBI fans say we can pay for it by cutting existing welfare programs and using those savings to fund UBI. But that also means we might be totally screwing over grandma because UBI will replace her social security and Medicare. Um, Andrew Yang's plan very specifically does not replace your social security. That's a common misperception. You pay social security taxes through your paycheck. That money belongs to you. UBI would then stack on top of it. Same with Medicare. Although we should really move to Medicare for all system. That's a whole nother thing. See our episode on Joe Biden's healthcare policies. He got 1% of the vote, Mimi. Anyway. Changing the way benefits are distributed, even if people are getting the same amount of benefits, is very tricky. Uh, Have you ever seen senior citizens in a buffet line try to take their breadsticks at an olive garden and start fighting like it's World War II all over again? They also have this really annoying habit of voting in larger numbers than any other group. So there are some obstacles. So to wrap this all up, a lot of people who otherwise really don't like each other all seem to really like UBI. And it sounds pretty cool. I mean, I'll take free money. When economists have studied UBI or programs like it, they find it's actually pretty good and people don't blow it all on hookers and booze. Actually, if that's the first thing that came to your mind when somebody mentions UBI, I think you need to take a long look in the mirror. Maybe you're not getting it. But UBI is a lot like this podcast. It sounds pretty cool and everyone agrees that Mimi and I should become fabulously rich because of it, but it's unclear how we'll actually be able to pay for that, especially because it's never been tried at a large scale. Thanks for listening to Skepticast. I'm Cooper Williams. And once again, if you enjoyed the show, please leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts, subscribe, and follow us on Instagram at The Skepticast. Skepticast.